Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Rory Marsh, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carl Crickbaum. Hello. And Carson Timmer. Hello, hello. On today's episode, we're covering the last two major releases of the year that chose to forego an exclusive theatrical window and instead take a streaming release. Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman 1984 arrives as the newest addition into the DCEU, while Soul is the latest collaboration between Pixar and legendary animation director Pete Docter. Let's finally put 2020 to bed, starting with Wonder Woman 1984. Citizens of the world. I'm here to change your life. Anything you want. Anything you dream of, you can have it. Who'll break your sargos? Diana, look at you. It's like now one day has passed. Wonder Woman 1984 fast forwards the character of Diane to the 1980s and finds her facing two all new foes, Max Lord and the Cheetah. Uh, Carson, why don't you start this one off? It sounds like you might be the uh, fondest of this film between yeah, the three of us. A very weird position to be in considering I tend to not like superhero films and especially the DC like extended universe. Even the films other people really like, like the first Wonder Woman, I don't think are necessarily great. I think at best they're completely average. I don't really like the series. I don't like a lot of these blockbusters. But apparently this one, I'm just the only one to absolutely love this film. I was genuinely a bit stunned by it. Um, On one hand, it is an absolute just goofy comic book, big movie. Uh, It is undeniably silly, especially towards the end of the film, which I think is where a lot of people probably don't enjoy the film. Um, it is really over the top, really stupid. But then you also have this really like interesting emotional arc to it and this emotional stakes that kind of raise and kind of engage you um, into the film's plot. I don't think it's perfect. It is undeniably just too long, but I think it actually justifies a longer runtime, maybe not two and a half hours. Um, but I think that's rather good. Um, I appreciate how this tonally is just completely different from the first film. It's much brighter, much more fun and charismatic. Obviously, that's something they were going for. Uh, but like I said, it just has those emotional stakes that elevate the material and make it to where I was actually engaging with the film. Um, it's weird because it, it, considering it's so different in a lot of ways from the first one, I think the issues are drastically similar to the first film, though. Like I said, it's already it's just too long. I think the CGI is rather shitty throughout, um, especially towards the end. There's some really bad looking fights. Um, but overall, this was a film I just had a blast with. So I really enjoyed it. I know no one else did. Um, this is Rise of Skywalker all over again, not to go down another rabbit hole, but I like this one a lot. Wow. OK, so. <laughs> The way you're describing this movie is the movie I wanted to see. That's the movie I wish I had seen. That is not the film that I saw. Um, I was a fan of the first film, I would say. It's kind of soured in my mind over time, but I still would consider it one of the best films of the DCEU, even with the crappy third act. Uh, The trailers for this film never really excited me. They never really kind of made me want to go and seek this out, but it was free on uh, on HBO Max. So I thought I'd, I'd give it a watch and I found it to be a complete mess. I found the structure so bizarre, the, the pacing to be completely off, way too long, way too unfocused. I, I didn't like how uh, the, the two antagonists don't share a a similar amount of screen time. It's kind of like broken up in a very choppy manner to where uh, we get a lot of development for one in the first act and then we kind of forget about her and move on to the the second antagonist for the second act. And then we kind of flip for the third. And I I agree with you. I found the, the CG to be terrible and it really brings me out of the movies when these... $200 $200 million DC films all look terrible. Um, I found the climax to be, to have some compelling ideas in it, but to be executed um, in a very flawed manner. I found Gal Gadot's performance to be kind of stiff throughout. I don't think she's a great actress. I think she shines most in the scenes with Chris Pine 
which were my favorite part of the first film, and they continue to be my favorite part of these movies. I like their romantic chemistry. It works. I like Chris Pine in this film. Um, the way they bring him back is, is odd, but it worked for me. I liked the goofiness. I liked when this movie embraced the goofiness in a way that felt reminiscent of the Richard Donner Superman film from the 70s. Uh, that's totally what I felt like at, at certain points, especially the first uh, scene with Wonder Woman uh, early in the film. But I found it to be a, a big old mess and um, it's getting worse the more I think about it over time. Um, so there's a pretty glowing review from Kyle there. Uh, I think I'm, I think I always say this when I'm on the podcast, but I'm somewhere in the middle here. I think I have more things I didn't like about it than I things I do, but I'll just rattle through those quickly. Uh, I kind of disagree. I think Gal Gadot is great. I think she kind of, people say this a lot about actresses who take on these iconic roles, but she really makes it her own. And I think she's literally kind of the perfect image of what Wonder Woman should be, judging from what I've seen from the comic books and TV shows and everything that she's been in before. Uh, I think she just really carries this whole thing on her shoulders and she's probably the strongest assets that the DCEU has at the moment. If you're talking about kind of popularity and value in like the market as well as general kind of public appraisal towards her. I also think Pedro Pascal's great. He's not someone who I usually look forward to seeing in films. I thought in Kingsman he was fine. I thought in The Mandalorian, you know, he's covered up the whole time. So there's not too much to really flex his acting chops in. But in this, from his very first scene, he's just so like charismatic and he's spouting off these cheesy lines to characters and he just seems like a real ass. And he kind of is quite a sympathetic villain, which is nice to see considering how horrendous uh, the villain was in the first Wonder Woman. That's something I'll get onto later a little bit because I think it's still an issue that this series really has. Um, but as a villain, I thought as a performance, it's really goofy and fun and quite refreshing to see. Um, I thought there was a really interesting dilemma thrown in here. There's also the central MacGuffin, which I'll also get onto later, um, which forces uh, Wonder Woman to choose between Steve Trevor and what's best for the world. And the fact that she doesn't immediately choose what's best for the world shows that she's not like this kind of pure hearted Superman character that I think a lot of people have issues with Henry Cavill's portrayal of Superman is he's, he's not conflicted, whereas here there's a real conflict. So whilst that is really good, the thing that I find really frustrating is that the relationship between Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor is like the beating emotional heart of these films. And they do have some real nice moments together and it's easy to see why they brought him back because that is the you know beating heart. But he is, it seems so disingenuous the way that he's, he's already brought back through tenuous means, which has something to do with this MacGuffin, which kind of has its own rules that aren't really explained and change according to however the plot wants it to be. Um, and his relationship with, with uh, Gal Gadot's character is great, but the film seems to introduce him when they need him and do away with him when they're done with him. His, his departure in this film, I was, cause you can kind of see what's gonna happen a mile off when you watch the film. His departure was gearing up to be a really impactful emotional moment, not just for the main character, but for the audience as well, because you know how important, and the, the way they build up his absence before his eventual return in this film is really quite touching and see how much she's missed um, having Steve Trevor around. But his, his departure in this film is one of the most disingenuous things I've seen in superhero films in a long time. Superhero films have a lot of problems trying to form unique and relatable characters. So it just completely baffles me how they'd go to such efforts to bring back this character and then just dispose of him in such a shockingly awful way. Uh, literally, he is dispersed of off-screen, which it, it, it baffles me. Um, Kristen Wiig is another interesting addition to this film. I don't think she's... When she was first announced to be the antagonist and who, which character she was going to play, I thought that was maybe quite an interesting choice. She's a great actress. She's really funny. She's very versatile. I think she might have been a good shout. And on, on paper, she seems like she would have been a good, a good shout for this character. But in practice, just doesn't work for me at all. And it might have something to do with the writing, but I don't think she's threatening enough an antagonist. I don't think she really pulls it off as well as, you know, she should be. And I think the, the filmmakers kind of 
realize that she's not a very anti an antagonistic character. And the, the point at which I realized that they might think that is the fact that they CGI over her face for the last half hour of the film. So I'm sitting there thinking she's not really working as an antagonist. And then they completely almost morph her into a different looking character. And I think maybe the filmmakers understood that too, which was slightly frustrating. Uh, but yeah, Wonder Woman's always had a problem with antagonists. And, and that's something I agree with Carl on here is that they kind of pick up and drop these two different people, Pedro Pascal and Christian Wiig, when they need them. It's like, it's like the Steve Trevor situation, again, but for the villains. And it just seems a little bit directionless. Yeah, even though their narratives are slightly intertwined, they don't really do anything with that, which is frustrating. Um, but yeah, that's obviously enhanced by the CGI which I really struggle, I really do struggle with. I don't know how films of this budget can, can get away with looking like this. I don't know how you can hire a team for however much money it costs and for them to produce something like this and to, for you to be satisfied with that. One thing that really struck me, and this reverts back to the Christian way of changing her face thing. In Captain America Civil War, there's an amazing scene where Captain America, Black Panther and the Winter Soldier are all running along like a highway, a motorway. And it looks realistic. And I've seen a lot of behind the scenes interviews about how they manage that because it's a very difficult thing to pull off having these superhuman people run alongside cars and for it to look tangible. In Wonder Woman, there's a lot of shots of Wonder Woman running alongside cars. And this is just a small thing, but it really annoyed me. And it looks awful. It looks horrendous. It's not believable at all. It looks like they've done the cartoon effect on her legs and they're turning into little tornadoes and zipping her off. And it baffles me that a few years ago, that was done beautifully. And in this, a few years later, you have filmmakers who could look at that as an example, just for the small thing and think, oh, that's a great way of tackling that. I know how they did it, let's do it. But they don't. And it just looks dumb. And this is another thing, I think the filmmakers realize that as well, because they try and cover up wide shots of Diana running alongside these cars as much as they can. There are close-ups of her back, where it's kind of false perspective, and it just doesn't work at all. And I think they realize that. And my issue is, is there are so many moments in this film where I see things that almost look covered up by the filmmakers and I think if you knew it was going to be bad at the time of making this film why didn't you try and improve your mistake there and then instead of waiting for the film to come out knowing it was you know a subpar sequence but uh that's my ramble on Wonder Woman running next to cars that uh, I'm sure no one really needed in their lives today but there you go um I just don't think the screenplay is very good I think the central MacGuffin is silly I don't want to spoil what it is but I kind of laughed to myself when I found out what it was. Superhero movies aren't realistic. I'm not going to stand here and say that. Obviously, they're not, and it's all kind of fantasy. But for some reason, this pushed me a little further than it usually does. Uh, and the climax, I thought, was overlong. That's my main issue with that. The fact that Wonder Woman is a two-and-a-half-hour-long film, and we spend maybe 20 minutes on a climax that is barely rewarding in any way and yet the most vital part of the story which is Steve Trevor and Wonder Woman is kind of done away with slightly baffles me. I think they didn't really try to improve on what people thought was best about the original in this one which is slightly frustrating for a sequel um, and it's just so goofy. At times that was good I mean I do like a, a goofy superhero movie and there were moments like the opening is kind of like a homage to 80s like advertisements and TV serials or whatever and I thought that was really fun because it's so it's so like comic book serial like saving the day saving you know the little kids from the bus or whatever like it's it's all very uh tongue-in-cheek and really nice and that just doesn't carry on you get to the title card and then it's very much straightforward DC Wonder Woman very much made in 2020 which is slightly disappointing to see, but that's my take on this movie. So I think there's quite a bit I can respond to there. Uh, first, I'll just say, as far as like the filmmakers covering stuff up, I don't know a lot what happened behind the scenes of Wonder Woman 1984. I don't really care. Um, but just to defend Patty Jenkins a bit, I think DC we've consistently seen as a company that likes to have their hands in with their uh, projects and really kind of take control. I know Patty Jenkins talked very openly about the first Wonder Woman and how she envisioned an entirely different third act and then Warner Brothers came in and changed it. Not that I think every fucking film needs its own cut, a second cut that comes three years later that adds shitty CGI um, and makes it five hours 
hours longer. But I know this is a studio that tends to like to have their hands in on their projects. So I could see them wanting all the CGI and then Patty Jenkins is trying to make the best of it. Now that I know for factual, that's what happened. Um, but talking about this MacGuffin, it's kind of hard without getting into spoilers. I think it's low-key kind of genius. It's definitely stupid and silly, which I think is just as something, if you're going to enjoy Wonder Woman 1984, you have to be able to play in the space of it being stupid and silly and not being this really deep movie a lot of the time. But I think it's especially genius because of the antagonist. Through the entire superhero genre, I think the antagonist and the supervillain and the villain of the film is always the area that most commonly gets fucked up consistently, no matter if you're talking Marvel, DC, whatever you want to talk about, the villain is normally the weakest part. And even though I don't think these villains are perfect by any means, I found them so refreshing because they're not really bad guys, even Pedro Pascal to a point, but especially Kristen Wiig. They're more just people who end up in opposition with Diane, not because necessarily the, oh, they're evil and they're trying to take over the world per se, but because, I mean, again, you can't really get them with spoilers, but because of reasons, they end up in opposition with Diane. I think that's why the ending feels so frustrating is especially with Kristen Wiig, they really try to push her as an antagonist when that really isn't what she should be. According to the narrative and what they build, she isn't necessarily a bad person. She's just trying to do what she thinks is best for her life and blah, blah, blah. And you can, you know, get into it if you were ever talking spoilers about this film. But I think that these two villains or i mean i'm going to call them villains even though they're not necessarily evil they felt so refreshing they didn't feel like they're just going through the mold putting a random villain in there it truly felt like they were inspired in this entire like moral conundrum you talked about it with uh steve trevor but throughout with every single character really within this film there has to be a sacrifice and i think that was so so interesting especially because it didn't feel necessarily like i didn't know necessarily until the third act where we were going with the story um, not to give any spoilers away, but it felt like we could be going towards a really happy ending or a really tragic ending. And it wasn't really certain where the film was going, which is also super refreshing for the superhero genre. Once you get to the actual scene, it's very clear what's happening. But I found this to be a really like engaging and interesting and intriguing MacGuffin if there is, you know, is going to be such a thing that broke the mold and didn't feel like it was just going through the motions. I also think the conversation around Gal Gadot is interesting because the film itself, also with a lot of its runtime, seems rather uninterested in her. Um, they spent a lot of time with these villains and side characters. Um, and I think that her performance especially just feels so bland in comparison to what like Pedro Pascal is doing. She is very much giving this kind of basic, really, you know, I think decently solid, but she is given this more baseline performance where everyone else is acting over the top. So I think that she tends to get lost in the shuffle when you really think about performances. Um, and like I said, even the focus of the film, a lot of the film is not spent with her. Um, which I don't necessarily think is a bad move. I like the, that they gave other characters more development. Um, but I guess those are just some points that I can respond to very quickly in my continued defense of this film. It's really interesting that you think that, um, that, that the dissenting opinions on this movie, I, they've been all over Twitter all week and, and it's so crazy divisive. Um, what I will say is I agree that Pedro Pascal is probably the best part of the film. I was intrigued by him. He, uh, he wasn't the normal villain per se. He wasn't the normal antagonist we had. There were a couple turns that they take with him that I found fairly compelling. I don't think Kristen Wiig works and I don't think it's due to her performance. I think she's doing a fine job. I just, I think it's solely down to the writing. From the second, uh, the first scene with her plays and she like is very clumsy and nerdy. I was immediately reminded of Jamie Foxx's Electro from Amazing Spider-Man 2. And it, it doesn't end up being that bad, but there are similar problems where from the first scene with her, you can see her entire character arc in front of her. There's no surprises with her. And I also, her flip from uh, one of the, you know, uh, an antagonist or uh, a protagonist to antagonist um, is so sudden. And that is tied in, without spoiling, that's tied into the MacGuffin. And I just didn't think it worked. Uh, it was way too sudden um, for the amount of buildup that she had. My main problem with this movie is just simply the pacing and the runtime. And I don't think the runtime would feel as long 
if they had spaced out the action set pieces better. Now, I'm not a person who needs nonstop action. I, I love a good slow burn. But when I'm going to see one of these $200 million big budget superhero movies, I like some good big budget, huge scale set pieces. And this movie really lacks them. In fact, there's an hour of the film early on with no Wonder Woman sequences. It's all build up for the villains. And by the time we get there and a, there's a few crammed into the last hour of the film, it feels so tonally dis dissonant. The two halves don't correlate. And if they just kind of spaced out and moved some things around, they could have had a more cohesive story structure. I think it's interesting to hear Carson's defense on this movie. I've got a lot of... Uh... Yeah, I, I feel like I kind of agree with a lot of points you're making. I think the whole Gal Gadot disappearing to the background thing is an issue at times, but she's such a kind of, what's the word? Like landmark part of this franchise that she's almost gotten to a point where she's infallible, I think, within the series. She's, she is kind of borderline iconic at this point, which is something I think the filmmakers understand. My, my main issue is that despite we despite us spending so much time with these antagonists, I still feel nothing towards them. I think Pedro Pascal, they do a better job with than Kristen Wiig. And I think you're right in the sense that her performance maybe isn't the problem here, but it's just such a kind of, this is my issue with the script. The script doesn't know what to do with these villains. Is the ending, hinting towards something more with them? Is it left open-ended for, you know, no particular reason? Are we, are we gonna see them again? It doesn't really reaffirm what their importance in this universe is or if there's any importance beyond this film in general. My main issue is that they're gonna be villains that we set up on rewatch. We spend an hour getting to know them and then it's all kind of just wasted. I'm, I'm, I'm finding it hard to, to organize my thoughts on this here but it's just something that slightly baffles me how the script is written. I think its priorities are in the wrong place when it comes to character work. And I think that's especially emblematic in the fact that Wonder Woman is largely absent from this movie. I think you're right. I think there's a scene, apart from the cold open, there's a scene in Cairo where she reappears as an action sequence. And that's maybe an hour and 15 in around that timestamp, which for a film called Wonder Woman is a slight problem, I think. And you're right, people don't come to these expecting deep character pieces, they come for action. But when you're not really delivering on that either, and you're just focusing on these kind of fairly bland villains, that's a real issue. I mean, charisma as an actor only gets you so far, and they do try to develop Max Lord quite a bit. And everyone's motivations seem fairly clear, but in the end, it all just kind of seems for nothing, and they're dispensed off fairly easily, and it's all happy days again, which I don't really understand. And another real issue I have, which stems back to the script, is with Wonder Woman's powers in this movie. I'm not sure where you guys stand on this, and I don't want to spoil anything, but let's say she, she gains two powers in this film, one of which we see very early on and one of which we see near the end. Now, in a superhero film, this tends to happen more in origin stories than sequels, but it does sometimes happen in sequels, I suppose. In a superhero film, the, the protagonists learning they have powers and learning how to use them and when's the right time and experimenting them and seeing what to do like Shazam did a great job of that another DC film which has done it better than this in this her powers kind of show up for like a five minute sequence in which they're needed she's in she just says oh I've just been fiddling with this and I know how to do this now and then she does something big and then it's great for 10 minutes and we see that power in full effect and then it never comes back again I feel like if you introduce something like that in the start First, we'll have some build-up, show us uh, this main character yearning to learn these powers or cultivate them or understand how to use them or where they came from, everything like that. There's so much backstory you can delve into there that'll be interesting, not only for to justify the presence of these powers, but to develop this main character. Um, so you, you need that, but also have it recur or bounce back or be something that you use later in the film don't have this character just use this certain power, which could have been useful for her whole, her whole kind of cinematic career thus far. Like we haven't seen it in Justice League or Batman versus Superman or the original Wonder Woman. And there's a power she gains in the end, which is a similar thing. It's something that rocks up for five minutes to help 
justify an emotional beat or get them out of a tough scrap and then they never ever use it again it's like bloody I don't know, Ready Player One when he buys things from the shop and just throws them out and you never see them. It's it's slightly baffling how in a film that's got so much pressure on it to succeed, I think it's it's no lie to say that the DCU is constantly walking a tightrope and it's constantly struggling to justify its own existence. And I think Wonder Woman 1984 was maybe, I mean, when we think about it, aside from Tenet, was this the most anticipated blockbuster of the year? one of them at least and when you have this many holes in something like that that's had time to gestate and cultivate and didn't really have the COVID pandemic to interrupt with shooting or anything like that you're making the film that you want to make there's no real excuse for it to have these glaring holes I can forgive a superhero movie for having the drawbacks that super movies have because don't get me wrong they all have the same problems most of the time but it just seems like they made their ideal version of this film with no drawbacks granted Carson you said that DC can intervene quite a lot and I can understand that being an issue and that's definitely visible in the finale now that I think about it but it just seems like this script needed a few more redrafts or maybe some different writers I'm really not a fan of it the script I think Gal Gadot's great um Steve Trevor Chris Pine's great Pedro Pascal's great Kristen Wiig would be great if she had something better to work with but all in all, it just seems like the right ingredients coming together under the wrong roof and just making a bit of a shit heap, to be honest. I mean, the DCEU is inherently just a fucking mess at this point. You have so many different tones and genres, and now you have like different cuts coming out and what's going to be canon, what isn't. And then the entire Wonder Woman like franchise, really, these are prequels to what we're in now. It's just a, a complete and utter mess. So, I mean, I think inherently that's one of the biggest issues with specifically the Wonder Woman movies is the fact that this character is now getting developed, but you already have the end point. But the end point is super boring, and it's like there's nothing there there you're building towards nothing it's just an absolute mess um specifically that first power that she gains you clearly can tell they had that scene in mind but they were like huh that doesn't make logical sense how do we make this make logical sense and they just threw that in there as a very last minute cheap fix um i agree that's you know the script is definitely rough in some areas i think overall is still compelling but i think it's hard to argue against those glaring issues that you bring up I only have a couple more uh, more points to add here. Um, I agree with you on the on the powers, the new powers that she obtains. the The first scene with it bothered me just because of how abrupt they introduce. Oh, off screen, I was I was honing my powers, and I can do this now. And the second scene bothered me for a completely different reason. I thought the way it was presented was so damn cheesy from the effects to the use of a, um, a song from the movie Sunshine um, that, that has been, it's been in a lot of movie trailers. It was, it's a very, um, it's a song that's been around the block a few times and it's been overused and they decide to use it during one of these emotional climaxes. And that, that was very distracting to me. The last thing I'll say is I've seen both praise, I've seen a lot of praise on the internet for the goofy side of this movie, the fact that it, it separates itself from the, the rest of the DCEU. And I wouldn't necessarily agree with that because Shazam came out a couple years ago and Shazam tackled that goofy tone with emotional moments and it struck the balance a lot better than Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, I'm gonna have to hard disagree with you there. I think Shazam's an absolute mess, if I'm being just completely honest. You have this funny, like, coming-of-age kid movie, and then you just have, like, the mass murder, brutal murdering of a boardroom, and it just does not add up. I agree, like, this is messy, but I also think Shazam is drastically messy. But, I mean, that's just my opinion. You can really think, anyone can think whatever they want, and that's valid. To be clear, you know, I you can have conversations around Wonder Woman 1984 and not be a complete asshole compared to what Twitter thinks, which is, I think, just genuinely the most annoying part of this film is that the discourse has become so toxic so quickly about this. Yeah, I suppose I suppose I agree with you on that one. There should be no uh, aggression towards just discussing film. That's a bigger issue at hand, I think. But uh, that's something that rears its head all too often. 
before we kind of close up this Wonder Woman conversation, I just want to talk to you guys briefly. I feel like we talk about this every time, or at least every time I've been on the podcast, we tend to talk about Justice League and DC and all that. Uh, do we think this kind of turn towards the goofier side of the universe is a good move? Because so far they're one for three, in my opinion. I think Shazam, Carson, I got to disagree with you, man. I think I think Shazam was good, but you know that's that's the beautiful thing about film criticism. We had different opinions, um, but then we also had Aquaman, which I don't know what you guys think about that. I'm not a I'm not a fan myself, but no one can deny that that stems into the inherently goofier side of these comic book movies. And you know maybe that could be DC's angle that maybe Marvel is the serious one with a slight light edge and DC is the one that just embraces the inherent goofiness of these comics. That could be an interesting angle for them to take. I feel like it might be a direction they're starting to move in after Wonder Woman, Aquaman and Shazam with Shazam 2 on the way. So I'd be curious to see, would you guys be keen on seeing like a kind of lighter turn towards these movies in future? You can also add Birds of Prey in there. That was pretty comedic and charismatic. And I think other than Wonder Woman 1984, this is my favorite DCEU film. That's probably number two. Um, but then you have the studio investing however much money into Snyder Cut, which is going to be like this dark and grim and like even possibly black and white, like four hour feature. So I think like that is the direction I'd like them to move into. I don't know if they will move into that. I think they're making moves both with Goofy and being very serious, though eventually it's going to catch up and they're going to need to make a decision once they bring everyone back together um, the next time. But I hope they go more Goofy because that's clearly, I think, more watchable. Even if it's not always great, it's at least watchable, which I can't say about a lot of their serious movies. Other than Aquaman, I agree. I think that's genuinely a piece of shit, but the conversation for another day. <laughs> Briefly on Aquaman, I think it is a terrible film but I had a lot more fun watching Aquaman than Wonder Woman 1984 because it does not give a shit about anything. But uh, I really do not care what tone the DCEU takes on. They just got to plan their shit ahead. They have to make a plan for these movies like the MCU does. And say what you will about the MCU. It's not, it's not high art, but at least they've made a thorough universe out of these films. They have a plan. They've, they've done their work. They've done their setup so they can have these big event movies like Infinity War and Endgame. DC hasn't done that. They do prequels to movies that came out years ago since we've, and we've had event films since then. And it's just, it's a tangled mess where there's no forward momentum there's no, there's no buildup to bigger villains. There's no, it's, it's a gigantic mess. So whatever tone they decide to go with, they just have to make a concrete plan and, and lock it down. I think one interesting thing looking at the trajectory of this moving forward is the fact that you st are starting to have these voices that kind of are tied to these characters. Uh, Patty Jenkins for Wonder Woman, for example. Um, yeah, then you have Warner Brothers making this, H this HBO Max deal and Patty Jenkins herself threatening that if you do stuff like this, you're not going to have talented directors and that they're going to go do other things. Patty Jenkins already is signed on to Star Wars now. So I'm really worried if they continue to go in this direction, which financially, I mean, we'll see how this HBO Max deal goes this year. Um, I could see that becoming a norm. They're going to lose those voices that at least had starting connections with these characters and understandings of them. And then you're just going to, again, falter and flounder even further than they are. I agree that there's just no direction or momentum. I think the best course of action is to get rid of the shared universe idea. There's not been a single moment in this entire extended universe where it felt like it was elevated because it was a shared universe. The best moments consistently are these separate voices and these separate characters just going off on their own things. Get rid of the universe. Stop tying yourself to each other. Just give good voices these characters and i mean i think the results will hopefully eventually get better than they are now mm, well i remember reading and correct me if i'm wrong but i remember reading or hearing somewhere that dc or warner brothers were saying they were gonna just focus less on this connected universe and more just on making individual uh kind of films of higher quality that aren't bound to the same tenuous like universe that they've tried to build here because i think I think in a way they're finally starting to accept that this shared universe isn't happening. I mean, even if you go back to, I'm bringing up Shazam again here. I'm not going to get too many nods from girls on this one, but uh, they, they keep on bringing, like even in Shazam, 
there's a post credit scene in that, but it's just kind of like a funny blip just to be like, oh yeah, Superman's still around. We can use him if we want to, which, you know, you can, if you've got a good reason for bringing him in. But I think Wonder Woman 1984, I think maybe it plays fast and loose with the canon of this era and this universe because they're starting to understand that like, right, Wonder Woman 84 is the next step in us making individual films that stand on their own or as part of like the Wonder Woman franchise, but don't have to be connected to this overall universe that we've tried and failed to create, which I think is respectable in the way because they're not just flogging a dead horse. But I think Kyle is right in the sense that this hasn't been planned at all. And this is something that I found heartbreaking in uh, in the Star Wars films. I'm sure Carson will contradict me on this one as well, but I did not like Rise of Skywalker uh, because it just reeks of, it reeks of, you know, rushing into things and just playing it fast and loose and scribbling stuff down. It's almost like, I can't remember what film it was, but there was a film many a few years ago where they were filming and then it actually probably happens on quite a lot of sets where they shoot a scene and then they scribble a rewrite and then shoot that instead. And it's kind of made on set. Not that I'm saying this was made on set, but I'm saying there's definitely a lot of confusion. And I'd, I'd love to sit down on a DC board meeting and just see how these are all arranged. Because, you know, it just seems like a fascinating, a fascinating environment to be in. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that. But then again, they're branching out with uh, Matt Reeves as the Batman. And we've had Todd Phillips as Joker. And apparently we're getting a second one of those. So that's on the back burner as well. And they're not necessarily connected to anything that's going on here. So I think this move away is good. And also the Batman and the Batman looks like it has a lot better CGI than Justice League or Batman vs Superman or Wonder Woman has as well. So maybe that's, maybe they're just getting this kind of, what is it, a formula that they've used to make these last 10 years of films and just chucking that in the bin. And I think that's probably a good move. But what do I know? Next, let's discuss Pixar's soul. Cut it, go for it. Today started out as the best day of my life. Back here tonight, first show's at seven. Yes! Woohoo! You know what that's gonna say? Joe Gardner! <laughs> I did it! I got the gig! Must have been sudden for you. Soul follows a musician who has lost his passion for music and is transported out of his body, leaving him to find his way back with the help of an infant soul learning about herself. Uh, Kyle, why don't you open with this one? So Soul was a film I had kind of average expectations for before I saw the reviews coming out. From the trailers, from the first couple trailers, it looked like a good film, but it looked like it was too heavily... There were too many similarities between like this and something like Inside Out. It seemed like it wasn't going to be a fully original film. And I will admit I was completely wrong. Soul is the most original Pixar film in years. It's the most emotional Pixar film in a while. And it's a film like a Ratatouille in that adults will get a lot more out of it than, than kids will. It's beautifully animated. The pacing is perfect. The music is great. It just, it, it nails that, that classic Pixar tone of the funny and the emotional and the, the stunningly animated. The voice acting is all top notch. Jamie Foxx does a great job. There's always something unique or new happening. It, it's never stagnant on a, on a specific area. It's always changing and flowing. There's so much life to it. It, it. It's There's a lot of great morals for kids and, and families. Everything about this movie for me, barring a couple plot conveniences throughout, everything works for me. I think it's it's one of the best films of the year, for sure. Yeah, I also really, really like Soul. Um, at least I think this is going to be something we all pretty much agree on. I'm not quite as high on it as everyone else is. I think a lot of people are calling this one of the best films of the year. Um, I think it's really good. I think Onward was better. Onward touched me in just like a really personal way. Um, but I think this is like top tier Pixar. Definitely one of the better ones in recent memory considering they've had quite a few lackluster sequels. Um, very original, stunning animation, though I'm starting to get worried about the future of CGI animation. We can talk about that later. Um, quite emotional look at passion and life and why do we do the stuff that we do and you know why is it li worth living? 
Um, I think there are pieces that are genuinely, generally underwritten, especially towards the end. I did not like the very end of the film. Um, but I think largely, yeah, I kind of echo all your points. I think this is a rather stunning feature um, that connects with audiences. It's very mature for Pixar, which I enjoy, I like to see. Um, I think, again, I, it, it feels like they have a lot of really good ideas. The film doesn't always know how to get from point A to point B, but once you get to point B, it's great. Once you get to point C, it's great. You know, there's these really great moments. It's just the actual journey is a little bit rougher than I would like. Um, but I mean, Pixar, yeah, just keep doing originals because these are damn good. It's interesting that you mentioned Onward here. Uh because I've got to admit, I think the conclusion of Onward did touch me a lot more than the conclusion of Soul did. But although I will say that as a film, as a whole experience, this, this was much more refined and kind of intellectually stimulating, maybe in a way. Uh, I'm not really a huge Pixar fan, which sounds like sacrilege to say. They've always been like the background and I've enjoyed them when I've watched them, but it's nothing I'd actively go and seek out. It's something I might catch on TV or if me and my mates want to watch an animated movie for once, we might try that. But it's not something I actively kind of seek out and look forward to. Although I will say I was a big fan of this. Um, the screenplay is great, I think. It's not something I usually pick up on in an animated film, the screenplay, but it's it's got, I've written here, a pull quote screenplay. There are just so many like cracking one-liners in this movie, not necessarily like puns or jokes, but ones that are just kind of very touching or emotional. And when they put into the context of the film, creates these really beautiful moments. And that's really pulled off by the voice cast who are great. Uh, Jamie Foxx, I haven't really seen in a role like this in a long time. I mean, the last thing I saw in him, him with him in was Project Power, which uh, I had to review for the website. and was just a very, a very long two hours. Um, but I think he's great. He's great. He's very kind of relatable. And, and there, there are certain moments in his life, there's a certain moment where they go into like a museum full of his life experiences, which is pretty heartbreaking stuff when you get an outside perspective on the life this guy's been living. And it's, it's, it's very touching to see. Uh, I also love the lore of this spiritual universe. Pixar are very good at this and they did it with Inside Out. And I think that's why you get all the comparisons because it's kind of uh, reverting like a very human experience down to like very mechanical, uh, in this case, like, heavenly uh you know goings on but i think the way pixar do that in an intelligible way that's not convoluted or confusing and just feels very kind of grounded even though you're literally looking at like a world in which souls are born and made and and their personalities is a really impressive feat that they managed to pull off and the last thing i'll say on this is is the the animation uh carson i'm interested to see what you're going to say about the cgi so let's get onto that soon but um I was pretty blown away with this. I mean, the backgrounds look borderline photorealistic. There's a scene where he, uh, Joe, spreads like a, a, it's like some of the trinkets that he's found over the course of the film on his piano, and they look. There's a like a. I'm focusing some really weird stuff in this podcast, but there's like a half-eaten crust of pizza, and I'm like, that looks like it's real. And the fact that we're getting that in a Pixar film, one, I'm not expecting it, and two. It's just really, really impressive to see how far this is coming. Uh, I will say that this is more adult-oriented than most of Pixar's other films. There's enough kind of bright lights and cute characters and things like that to keep people going through, but it's it's one of their more adult-oriented things. Uh, my favourite Pixar film is Ratatouille, so Kyle, cheers for bringing that up. I think it's very similar to this in a way, in that it's more oriented to you know a crowd who will think about these ideas on a deeper level but kids will still enjoy it, I'm sure. I think it's a great family movie for the holidays and I'm glad Pixar decided to put it out on Disney+. Plus. Um, this is definitely, a f I'm, I'm really struggling here between what will be the front runner for best animated feature between this and Wolfwalkers. Maybe that's something we can get into later if you guys have seen that one. But um, yeah, I was very impressed with Soul. I'm looking forward to seeing it again at some point down the line. I think it's got a lot to say, which uh, I wouldn't necessarily say about a lot of other Pixar films. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much echo all your thoughts uh, perfectly. I love when Pixar tackles this kind of lore, this kind of universe. They, they break down feelings and emotions and, and souls to the barest parts and show kind of the, the workmanlike process of how they're made, how they operate. I think it works so well. Um, the animation consistently blew me away. 
there's a shot, you focus on a specific shot. There was a shot during one of the jazz performances where uh, someone is in the foreground uh, playing the saxophone and there's like a light kind of obscuring her partially and it looked photorealistic. I thought it was an incredible shot. Um, and even when the animation style, they, they attempt something new with it and they go more 2D, I found that stunning too. It reminded me of one of the old Pixar shorts like Day and Night uh, from a few years ago. Yeah, I, I just, I pretty much adored this film uh, front to back. Yeah, I think Pixar's always proven to be really good at world building and especially in this kind of light, you know, purgatory, I guess is what it actually is. Um, how they blend the different animation styles is just genuinely stunning. It's so inviting. And you just want to like, just see how the world operates, which is so hard to do considering it's so mundane and it's kind of just, you know, very procedural, but it, there's something about the worlds Pixar creates where it's just so fun to live in these worlds, or I guess in this case, die in the world um, and just be there and just see how everything works. What I was getting at with the CGI animation is where this film is undeniably stunning. There is a clear, I think, ceiling that CGI animation trying to be realistic specifically is going to hit. We're already, if this came out 10 years ago, it would be unbelievable, the animation quality. But now the standard of animation for CGI animation trying to be realistic is so high that where, yes, this is stunning. I don't know how it's going to evolve from here because you're getting to the point where it looks photorealistic. You can't go above it being photorealistic. You eventually, you're just going to hit live action if you just keep going going we see with the lion king number one that doesn't really look good um but i think that this is an animation style that eventually is going to hit the glass ceiling and when every film looks as good as soul looks i i wouldn't say i'm necessarily worried this isn't going to ever co probably come back to be a negative for the genre but eventually it's going to lose its touch and it's going to lose its inspiration it hasn't yet this is still stunning but in 10 years, I don't know if we're going to be looking back at Soul and saying, wow, that is such a beautiful, you know, piece of animation. Wow, I can't believe they did that. Unlike something like Wolfwalkers, where that animation, I think, is so unique and it's so inspired and it's so creative that in 30 years, I think we're going to look back at Wolfwalkers and say, holy shit, what a piece of art that is. I don't know if Soul visually is going to age as well. It's never going to look bad. Again, you are capturing the real world. The real world is always going to look this good. When you create something photorealistic, that's going to stand forever as a reflection of what the real world looks like. But I just don't know if I want for future films, again, this is not a negative with Soul, to be very clear, this is not a negative. I want to see them be more experimental with animation and find something. And I mean, granted, you can do more interesting world building. Um, you know, this is taking place in New York City for everything in the, you know, real world. You have something like Big Hero 6, which creates this really intriguing world. Zootopia, another, you know, example of that. But I think that I really hope that animation and this inspiration, this budget for animation gets used in creative ways, like with projects like Wolfwalkers, because those are going to be the films that truly stun and continue to push the, you know, animation field. I don't know how much further this specific realistic CGI focus can be pushed past what Soul provides. So again, that's definitely not a negative, but it's just something I couldn't help but think about considering, you know, it looks stunning, but ultimately I don't know if I was as wowed by this film visually as I kind of wanted to be. Um, I think I think a corner Pixar have put themselves into here is despite what you said, you know, obviously it is true that photorealistic animation can only go so far. But I think they have cornered themselves into a very specific animation style. I mean, it's it's easy to see how their films differentiate in the way things are animated and the way characters look. And often that's contextual for, you know, the narrative or whatever. But there's no denying that all Pixar's characters do have a very similar look. And even in this film, the backgrounds are photoreal, but the, the, the characters, even our human characters, are, you know, you can see... You can see the protagonists of a bug's life in the characters in this movie. You can see the characters from uh, Monsters, Monsters, Inc. in this movie. It, it's a very specific style. And I think the thing Pixar are going to struggle with is if they stray away from that style, that may alienate a lot of their fans, a lot of their viewers who come to these movies expecting to be brought into the same world that they always are. And it's a it's a it's a it's a style that's proven very commercially successful and it's iconic and it's 
you know, you can look at a poster and think that is a Pixar movie, which is something to be, you know, applauded for a, for a studio that's been so successful as Pixar has. It's, it's very much built its own brand that can be ascertained purely through looking at something. But with Wolfwalkers, the, the, the benefit that Cartoon Saloon has there is that each one of their films is, is I, I wrote a review for Wolfwalkers and I said that the, the style was very kind of homegrown as if it was made exactly for that film and for that story. And what Cartoon Saloon have done, because they're quite a fledgling studio, is they've, they've kind of understood the fact that everything needs to look different and they, and they adjust their animation style for the story rather than just using the same one every time. Uh, so I think, yeah, Wolfwalkers is definitely the more, the more striking film visually and the, and, the, and the things they do in that film with the animation is just pretty spectacular, I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, but Soul, yeah, I don't know, it's just a very, it's definitely just feels like the most modern film Pixar have made because it's just so visually impressive. I mean, it, it looks more realistic than Wonder in 1984 and that has real people in it. So, I mean, ascertain from that what you will, but um, that's where I stand on that. Do we, do we think, I don't want to lean too much on the Oscars here, but do we think there are any other animated films in the running for best animated, animated feature apart from those two? Uh, no, I do not. I think, I think it'll come down to, to Wolfwalkers and, and Soul. And I think Soul's going to take it because Disney dominates that category every single time. I've not seen Wolfwalkers yet personally, but I, uh, I, I, I think it looks incredibly stunning from the trailers and it's, it's definitely on my watch list. What I will say about Soul is I, I, I agree with your, with your fear of the future of animation, Carson, because I've had it too. I had it in watching uh, Toy Story 4 and one of the first scenes with the rain falling down the car. I thought it was incredible. And I was like, how are we going to get better than this? Like eventually it's going to have to stop. I think Soul kind of rectified that issue for me by focusing on a different animation style at points and specifically the color palette of the film. I think the way that that it uses color, especially in this like afterlife, this great beyond, um, is what is visually stunning about it. Yes, the movie looks fantastic, but as long as as the animation quality itself continues to be stunning, they have to make improvements with how they choose to use that style. They have to be creative with it. So I, I agree that I'd like to see them branch out into completely different styles, but I don't think they will because they're so set in one. But if they're going to stay in their style that they've had for, for decades now, then they need to use color and, and different tricks to, to keep it fresh. Yeah, I'll quickly say throwing my hat into the ring for the Wolf Walkers versus Soul Debate, I don't really see anything else gaining steam to compete with either of these two. Um, I think it's a really kind of tricky battle here considering neither one had, well, Wolf Walkers had the theatrical release, Soul did not, which is an interesting point that Disney's the one here that doesn't have the theatrical debate or a release. Last year we saw what the missing or missing link, I don't think it was the missing link, just missing link. Um, at the Golden Globes, at least, pick up a big win, but then Toy Story 4 still won. But also that year was Frozen 2 and Toy Story 4 from Disney, which are both sequels. This is original. Um, just thinking about the reception I'm hearing, obviously both Wolfwalkers and Soul are incredibly positive received. I think there is more passion for Wolfwalkers. I think more people have obviously seen Soul and like Soul, but I think the passion is more behind Wolfwalkers. I think already with critics groups, we are seeing quite a few go to Wolfwalkers. So I think it's actually more of a race than it originally seemed because obviously at first it just seemed Soul was going to dominate. I mean, people are literally talking about this potentially getting a best picture nomination. Um, I mean, we will see. I think it is at least a race. I still think Soul is probably going to win. Um, I would be fine with Wolfwalkers winning, though, because Studio uh, or a, a Cartoon Saloon um, is also just needs Oscars. They deserve an Oscar nearly every time they're nominated, and they haven't won one yet. So I'd be completely fine with them winning, even though I do prefer Soul overall. Um, I mean, I'm just happy that I like both of the options because normally that's not the case. Normally I'm pretty mad with what's in the running. Um, this year, these are two of my favorites. Onward is still my number one animated film of the year. Um, but I do really love both those films. So I'm fine either way. I do think it's going to be Soul, 
but there's at least a race, which is more than I thought we were going to get this year. So I'll, I will take it. Uh, I think I got to, I got to agree with that. I think uh, Sol has got the award in hand pretty much, but I think it would be beneficial for the industry as a whole. Maybe if, if Colton Sullivan did take the win, I think you're right. I think independent studios like that struggle a lot more obviously so every time a film gets to cinemas or our screens it's a real achievement and i think acknowledging that and the extremely high quality they always are is something that the academy maybe should consider but obviously this is pixar so <laughs> they might just be bugged um i mean to be fair gonna... they have wolfhawkers as apple which is i mean a gigantic fucking studio i think that's the one thing people are not really taking in consideration is like apple financially can compete with the biggest studios there are they can compete with disney they can compete with netflix like if anyone is going to beat disney not even because i think wolfhawkers is a good film but i think because it's apple i think there's the chance there that it will compete just simply due to the money it's going to get for its marketing. Apple wants an Oscar this early on into their streaming service where it's now available. So I think if Apple really wants it, I think they could potentially outbid Disney here. I think like, I mean, I just, I think that's the big X factor here that makes me, if it was just a normal release, like Leica had, I don't think it would stand any chance really, but Apple could do it over Disney. I think, I think this is the biggest competition Disney has faced in years, if I'm being honest, since, I mean, not including Spider-Man, but that one. To round out Clappercast, we like to end on the crew's latest film recommendations. Carson, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so similarly to last week, I'm just in this stage where I'm just trying to catch up on every like 2020 release I missed. You're getting to the end of the year. This is our last review or our last podcast of the year. Um, so I've seen quite a bit of good cinema recently. The one I'm going to pick, though, is Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You. Um, this is on Criterion Channel in America. I don't know exactly where it's available worldwide. I'm sure it's VOD at least, if not some streaming service. Genuinely quite a stunning film about the working class. It takes place in the UK and is just talking about the sacrifices that the working class makes. Um, it's about a father who gets a job basically through Amazon delivering packages and he has to work all day because he has to make money for his family or else his family's not going to eat. They're not going to get their house. But that also means he's not there for his family. He's not there with his kids. He's not there enjoying his life. Um, and his family suffers very, you know, tragically for this like sacrifice. And it's all about that conversation of, you know, you know, you have to work, but then you also have to live your life. And where's the balance? Where's the sacrifice? And it's this really tragic look at just like the current state of like capitalist society um, that is emotionally just devastating. It features some of the best performances of the year. Um, it premiered at Cannes, I believe, two years ago, maybe last year. Um, but it's sadly flown under the radar and it just had a tiny release, it seemed, at least here in America, which sucks because I genuinely think it's one of the best films of the year. So I would highly recommend if you get the chance, like I mentioned, it's on Criterion Channel in America. Sorry we missed you. Definitely check it out if you want to just be like depressed about how you're going to work for big corporations for the rest of your life and never have like happiness. But like, that's fine. Uh, Kyle? Yeah, I'm kind of the opposite of Carson right now. I haven't been able to watch a lot of movies. I've been finishing up my, my semester of school. But, uh, but one that I rewatched a few days ago, I hadn't seen since theaters, was Annihilation. And this movie is brilliant. It just gets better on rewatch. I think it is one of the most harrowing, unsettling, thought-provoking sci-fi films of the last five, ten years. And pretty much everything it does is brilliant. I don't believe it's on any of the big streaming services. I had to rent it, but but it, if you haven't seen it by now, it is so so worth it. I can I can definitely back up that choice. I, I've I've got a take here. I don't think it's too hot, but I think uh, the bear attack scene in Annihilation beats The Revenant any day, and that's coming from someone who absolutely loves The Revenant. So that should say quite a lot there. Uh, I'm I'm similar to you, Carson. I've just been trying to desperately get. I've got like a list of 50 films on my letterbox of 2020 features that I want to get through, and it's just not it's not happening. But I've been through a few. Uh, one I'd really like to recommend is uh, Shit House. Yeah, it's actually it's actually called Shit House. Um, I think that was more of an attention grabbing thing than anything else, but it's worked. So well done to Cooper Rafe, who's the writer, director, producer, lead actor of this movie. Um, it's about a college freshman who's just kind of not really enjoying himself and he's coming to terms with 
homesickness and loss and, and everything that he's struggling with in his life uh, and just coming to try and make friends. And it's, it's something that's interesting to see because you don't really see college movies that focus on people who aren't having a good time. I think fortunately for most of us, that's not really the case, but there are people out there who struggle with that. And this is a really, really grounded, kind of pretty emotionally devastating movie that looks at that and looks at how these young people come to be the way they are and the, the little things that everyone struggles with in their day-to-day -day life. It might, it might be insecurity, it might be anxiety, lots of things that people really have uh, trouble with. And it's just a really honest, kind of unflinching look at that. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty astonishing debut. And it's something I definitely recommend, if, if above all else, just to support this kind of emerging talent that didn't really have the chance to get their film out of there as much as they should have due to the pandemic. So definitely check out Shithouse. Um, uh, that's it for this week's episode of Clappercast, though. Where can we find everyone on social media? Carson? So you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews that links to, I just post links wherever I write or on letterbox Carson Tamar. If you want some more, just horrible takes on stuff, read my 2000 words on why I loved rise of Skywalker. It's there. So check it out. I think I'm going to have to read that just to <laughs> get some sense of what you're thinking about there. Uh, Kyle, you can find me uh, on Twitter and letterbox at Kyle Craig bomb K R I E G H B A U M. Uh, you can find me on Leatherboxd at Rosa227. But you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook, ClapperLTD on Leatherboxd, and at Clapper Limited on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow us to be notified when the next episode releases every Wednesday. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week or next year to discuss all things cinema.